Thank you, Danny and Nancy. And if you'll turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, we're going to come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But I want to point out a couple of scriptures here in the book of Acts that deal with this matter of conscience that we were looking at earlier. The Apostle Paul is uh, very aware of the importance of keeping a good and pure conscience. And he, we saw some of that in chapter 8 this morning. And here in chapter 23 of the book of Acts, remember Paul is testifying with regard to his testimony. And he says in verse 1, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Wow is right. Can I say that? Can you say that? That's the challenge that he's putting forth before us here. Is it possible to be in a condition like this as a Christian? Of course it is. Because as we've said this morning, the conscience is a great tool that God has given us. And and the conscience is not infallible in itself. It can be influenced by prejudices or by preconceived ideas that are wrong. So the conscience, especially for us who are born-again Christians, we want it to be informed by the Scriptures. Right? According to truth. And that's why when we were talking about this morning, just to clarify, we were talking about this morning about the professional weaker brother in quotations, right? The, the one who wants to continue to stay a weaker brother and not grow in the Scriptures and in the truth, but just has a critical judgmental spirit, is usually very divisive in a meeting and a, and a real burden to elders. <laughs> a real difficult shepherding challenge. Because they're refusing to grow. And we talk, I use the term being hypersensitive to sin. Let me explain that. I didn't say being hypersensitive to specific sins, plural. We should be hypersensitive. You can't be oversensitive to specific sins. Nor did I say that it's bad to be hypersensitive to sinning. We should be sensitive and super sensitive to any time we, we sin as an ongoing practice, alright? But I, what I mean by hypersensitive to sin is trying to label things sin that the Bible doesn't label as sin. You see what I mean? For example, someone may say, well, if you remember the Lord around the elements, and you use leavened bread instead of unleavened bread, you're sinning. Okay? There are people that do that, that say that. But I don't think there's scriptural basis for that. There are some people that say that if you use more than one cup at the Lord's Supper, you're sinning. Right? Is that true, biblically? So... And there are, people will label certain things with regard to dress, right, as sin. Or, you know, the Bible says the woman should have long hair, but it doesn't say that it should be 
six inches long or nine inches long or two feet long, right? And so some have tried to label a certain length. And if it's not a certain length, then you're sinning against that scripture. Is that you see what I mean by trying to label things sin that the Bible doesn't call sin? Now, the Pharisees were experts at this, right? When they they were always looking for a cause to accuse our Lord and the apostles, right? When they went through the grain fields plucking grain, in which the book of the law says that 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 is possible they can do. That's not a violation of of the Lord's word. And to try to accuse them. See, someone that has that kind of an attitude is really an accuser of the brethren, aren't they? So who are they imitating? They're imitating Satan. Whether they realize it or not, we're to imitate Christ. Christ is a lover of mercy. Christ says that mercy is promised to those who are merciful. Right? They shall receive mercy from God. Someone who's harsh, judgmental, unmerciful is out of fellowship with the Lord, according to the Sermon on the Mount. So you're with me on that? That's so important to see. And, and unfortunately, you say, well, why does that even, is that even come up? I don't know why. I guess there are certain temperaments, personalities of people that, that just want to be abrasive and, and, and accusing and, and always wanting to be critical of others. And so it is a pastoral matter for elders to deal with. And of course, Hebrews 13 tells us that it's not profitable for you to make it a burden to your elders to to make yourself a high-maintenance Christian to your elders. That's not profitable to you. Hebrews 13, 17 tells us. So Paul says that, that I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That is, every sin that I know about, that the Holy Spirit has revealed to me, I have dealt with. That's what he means. That's what the word blameless means. When the Lord said Job was blameless, he wasn't saying that Job was perfect, that he never sinned. He had dealt with. The Lord gives a measure in the Old Testament and in the New about how we deal with sin. But we still have to deal with it, right? Over in, in uh, one page over in, in chapter 24 of the book of Acts, in verse 16, Paul says it a similar way, but he adds a component to it. This being so, this is his testimony before Felix, right? This being so, I myself always, I love this, always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. I always strive to have a conscience void of offense, not only before God, but with men too. That's the kind of testimony that God is looking for. And Paul will tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 to be in that same attitude of mind, and therefore as he's telling him that, He's telling us that. First Timothy 1, 5, if you have time to look at it or you can listen. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and from what kind of a conscience? 
a good conscience and from sincere faith. So he's saying, Timothy, good conscience. Again, in verse 19, having faith. He says, this charge I commit to you, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. What have they, what have they rejected? They've rejected a good conscience. And they suffered shipwreck because of it. He'll, he'll say over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, again, to Timothy, reminding him, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as more fa- my forefathers did without ceasing. Remember you in prayers and so forth, right? So the Apostle Paul, and, and beloved, you can look up the word conscience in your concordance and see there, it, there are many other places it occurs. It's a powerful, shall we say, system or component of our personality, part of our, our mind and heart and will and imagination and memory. All of that conscience is part of that. And it's a great tool. And if we inform it by being regular in our reading of the Scripture, it will be quicker to recognize when we sin against God. And that will be to our benefit. So coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I know I said we'd look at 1 Corinthians 9. but And by the way, I apologize for running, running over this morning. Uh, my heart is not to draw attention to myself. I hope you know, know me well enough to know that. My heart is for you. And, and I want to give you as much as I can before I leave. And, and I forget how that clock works sometimes. So, uh, so I appreciate your patience. But my heart is for you. And, and this is so important. And I get wrapped up in it sometimes. And... Uh, I'll be leaving, Lord willing, Tuesday morning. I appreciate your prayers. It's been really, really great to be with you and to see the work of God here. And I know that wherever I see the work of God going, there's going to be a bullseye for Satan at that same place, right? So we really need to be in prayer, broken and contrite before the Lord and seeking to walk closely with Him, as you're already doing. So the Apostle Paul coming back then to these, this issue of meat sacrifice to idols. And he introduces, that's just the particular matter that they brought up with him, right? That particular area of liberty, of Christian liberty. But Paul's giving certain principles that apply to all areas of Christian liberty. So I'm glad they brought it up. And he says, with regard to the knowledge of there being one God only, in verse 7, however, there is not in, in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol, in other words, having some sort of an idea that there's some power in that idol, usually that's attributed to superstition and lack of knowledge, but until now, eat is a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay? So what do we do with that person? Well, love would tell us that we do not want to put a stumbling block before them. We always want to seek to build up our brethren, not tear them down. This takes practice. 
This is not automatic. Do you know what is automatic? To tear them down. And, and the longer we lived in the flesh before we were saved, the more we're going to be prone to always be thinking negative and tearing down and destructive thinking towards our brethren. It's subtle. We don't even realize it. it's automatically there because we trained ourselves to think that way for maybe 25, 30 years before we were saved. That's why we like to see people get saved younger so they don't have all those years of practice of doing things and thinking things the wrong way. So he says, but food does not commend us to God. The food, one way or the other, it doesn't. For neither if we eat or if we are we the better, nor if we don't eat, are we the worse, see? Now whether that food was, whether that meat was offered to an idol or not doesn't make any difference. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. See, we're not like Cain. We are our brother's keeper. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for him? I'm just responsible for me. Selfishness, right? But, but God says, no, in the church... In the Christian family, I am responsible for you, and you are responsible for me. And there's a tenderness there. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, that is, those who are strong in the faith, and their conscience is not convicting them, if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? He will. He'll say, well, brother so-and-so went in there and ate meat offered to idols, so I guess I can too. But his conscience is convicting him. So what's he doing? He's violating his conscience. And you never want to violate your conscience. You never want to go against it. Why? Because each time we go against our conscience, it does something to the conscience. That's what he's calling a defiled conscience. It does something to it. It desensitizes it. And each time we do it, we desensitize it more and more till ultimately we can desensitize it so much that we can have a seared conscience that he talks about in the pastoral epistles. So it's very important that when our conscience convicts us of something, that we follow it, and until we have Scripture to show us otherwise, we submit to what the conscience tells us. That's why when we talk about an issue like, should a Christian vote? That is a matter of conscience. And it's a conviction that each Christian has to make before the Lord and for, before their own conscience. Some Christians feel like they have the liberty to say that, well, I don't vote, I pray instead. Because Romans 13 says to pray, Paul says to pray in 1 Timothy 2, for those in civil authority over you, that the gospel may continue to be able to go out, right? And if they are convinced in their conscience that that's what they want to do, then that's between them and the Lord. It's not for us to judge them. It's not for us to go around 
parading placards in front of them of who to vote for and all of that and, and agitating them if we know that's what their conviction is. And then some have the conviction to vote. They feel like that that is a privilege that they have in this particular civil government that we are under in this country and that that, should, that privilege should be exercised. Well, if that's your conscience or your conviction, go do it. But you can't impose that on someone else. That's between you and the Lord, you see. That's in these matters of Christian liberty, that's how we deal with them. Each person is responsible based on their own conscience. The problem is that some people want to impose their conscience on somebody else. That's when the problems happen. Now you understand we're talking about areas where the Bible does not have a clear mandate, yes or no. When the Bible's clear and it's yes or no, that's not a matter of Christian liberty, that's a matter of obedience. Right? We're talking about there are so-called gray areas, areas where the Bible has not given a specific injunction one way or the other, but it does give principles that we are to apply in those situations. And that's a wide range of things. And, and that's the area sometimes where a lot of Christians have difficulty. So it's something that's very important. So he says, this person with the weaker conscience sees the one with the stronger faith go into the temple. And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish, verse 11, for whom Christ died. See, the perspective that we're to have is this brother or sister, whether we agree with them or not, whether we understand them or not, and we, we're not to despise them. See, Paul says in Romans 14 that the strong in the faith tend to despise the weak in the faith, and the weak in the faith tend to judge the strong in the faith. That's what happens. And both of them are divisive, right? Both attitudes are divisive. And so we, we are to exercise care. That's what love tells us to do. And to remember, this person is someone for whom Christ died. Christ gave His life for that person. It's interesting, over in Romans 14, it's probably worthwhile to, to see how Paul, how Paul words it there. It's a parallel passage to this one. But Paul says in, in verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not about our diet, or regulations what we eat and drink. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, we can get locked in on all these things that are things that don't really matter in one respect and get off the main course. Paul says in verse, still in chapter 14 of Romans, read with me, verse 13, Therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Same thing he says in 1 Corinthians 8, right? I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus, the apostle says, that there is nothing unclean of itself. See, he had informed his conscience by the word of God and came to the position that there was, we were not under the Leviticus 11 diet regulations anymore. Remember how the Lord had to let down the sheet three times to Peter to convince him of that down in Joppa? Because he said, oh no, nothing unclean has gone through these lips. 
He says, don't pronounce what I've cleansed unclean. See, the Lord has been clear about this. And Paul says that I'm convinced there's nothing unclean of itself. It's all sanctified by the Word of God and prayer. That's why we pray before we eat. I don't pray before I eat because I want to do a ritual or make an impression or even for testimony purposes, but that can be a good motive. I do it because there's all kinds of diseases and viruses and germs in that food and I don't want to get them. And I know it, that it's sanctified, it's cleansed by the Word of God and prayer because the Bible tells me that and I believe the Word of God. And that's what I'm asking God to do when I ask Him to bless that food. Don't let it kill me. And in mine, the day in which we live, I mean, they're, disco they're discovering more viruses almost by the week, it seems. And we don't have antibiotics to deal with them anymore. And so Paul says, I know I'm convinced by the Lord there's nothing unclean, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Why? Because his conscience is convicting him that it's unclean. So for him it is unclean until his conscience is cleared on the matter, right? Until he's instructed and he needs to be instructed. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in what? You're no longer walking in love. And we're supposed to be walking in love. That is a command. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. See, we're to value that individual brother or sister like the Lord values them. How much does the Lord value them? He paid an infinite price for them. His blood is infinite in value, is it not? That's what He paid for them. So what does He think of them? He values them very highly. And He wants us to as well, you see. Kind of changes the whole perspective, doesn't it? When we put it from the viewpoint of the, what the Lord's done. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, joy. That's what's going to characterize the kingdom that we've been appointed to. But he says, you're to live on the basis of kingdom values now as believers in Christ, aren't we? We're already citizens of that kingdom, Paul tells us in Philippians 3. So live like it. Live according to the principles of that kingdom primarily, he says. So coming back to 1 Corinthians 8, he says in verse 12, But when you thus sin against the brethren, you wound their weak conscience... And look what he says. This is strong wording. When you do that, you sin against Christ. You sin against the brethren. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You see what Paul's doing? He's applying the principle to himself. He's restricting his liberty 
according to love, which is a higher principle than liberty. And that's what leads into what he's going to talk about in chapter 9. We talk about, as our, what about my rights as a Christian? Why should my rights be restricted, right? Well, already, that kind of attitude is a selfish attitude, isn't it? It's not about you. <laughs> not about me. It's about the Lord and what He wants to do through you and me. Get your eyes off yourself and on the Lord Jesus, the, the hymn tells us, right? It's not about you. The world doesn't revolve around you or me. It's the Lord that's the center, see? So Paul's going to now move into his own lifestyle and he's going to say, look, I'm not just being theoretical about this. I'm not giving you ideas and things. You know, you're to live like that, but I'll live differently because I'm an apostle. No, he says, I'm going to give you an example of this. Self-denial instead of self-exaltation. And here's what he says. Verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? A definition of an apostle. Are you not my work in the Lord? He's reminding them of his own position before them, right? He's already told them these things earlier in the letter. If I am not an apostle to other people, yet doubtless I am to you, Corinthians, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. If there's any doubt about my apostleship, the fact that you're saved and that there's a church in Corinth is the seal of my apostleship, it proves that, Paul says. My defense, same word, my apologia, we get apologetics from that. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and a drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Tells us that Paul and Barnabas had chosen a life of singleness for the Lord, which was self-sacrificial, he's saying. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? You see, we didn't look at this, but in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul had exhorted them with regard to singleness and marriage. He says in verse 32, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Right? Very practical. Someone unmarried has more time to give to the Lord's work than someone who's married. Why? Because he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And he better do that because he tells us earlier in chapter 7, you can't say, well, I'm in the ministry now and so my wife, I neglect her. You can't do that. A lot of children of ministers that have been hurt by that because they were neglected for the sake of the ministry, the brother should have realized that before he married and had children. He has a responsibility now to his wife. 1 Corinthians 7, the first six verses are very clear about that. He has a responsibility to his children. And so he's already made the decision. And Paul is telling those that are unmarried, he says, I'm urging you to stay unmarried. If the Lord has given you the gift of singleness, you, excuse me, use it for Christ. Use it for the Lord. He says there's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, 
How should we please her husband? See? And so we come over to chapter 9, and the Apostle Paul applies that to himself. To me, that's fascinating. It almost would be unrighteous. That's a strong way to say it. But it would almost be unrighteous for Paul to urge that in chapter 7 and then not apply that to himself. Right? But he does. He says, look, Peter, the other, the brothers of the Lord, the other apostles, they all are married. Barnabas and I could have chosen marriage, but we chose to put that on the altar for the Lord. Now he had, as he makes very clear in chapter 7, you can't do that without the gift of singleness, which must come from the Lord. That's what's had all the problem in certain religious denominations that we know about because they've tried to live a life of celibacy without the Holy Spirit. And you can't do that. Very dangerous. Leads into all kinds of dangerous pattern of behavior, right? Because we can't stand up to those desires within us. But by the Holy Spirit, we can. By the Holy Spirit, we can stand up to any desire, can't we? Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. And it's a very practical thing to consider. And to me, this is something that we ought to encourage and inform, at least, our young people about. But we have so overreacted to Roman Catholicism that... That, well, I've heard it said that all Christians need to be married. But that's not a biblical principle. Paul certainly didn't teach that in 1 Corinthians. And to deny the opportunity for some whom the Lord has gifted and called to singleness and to use that for the Lord can be very dangerous to their testimony too, can't it? Lead to a lot of frustration in the marriage, a lot of problems with the children, and so forth. So Paul says, I have a right to be married as an apostle, but I have set that right aside. What's he doing? He's setting an example of the kind of thing he's just told them in chapter 8. There are certain rights Liberties that we have. I have the liberty to be married. He says, I have the right to be married, but I've set that aside for the Lord. Now he's going to talk about support, financial support. Paul says, I have a right as an apostle and as a servant of the Lord to be supported by you Corinthians financially. It's a right, he says. But he says, I'm not exercising that right with you Corinthians. The implication is because I know how worldly and materialistic you are. Number one. And you're stingy, he says, the implication. And number two, he says, because false teachers have come in and they expect that support and I want to take away the opportunity they have to exploit you. So he says in verse 7, whoever goes to war at his own expense. Right? You're going to send somebody to war and say, now support yourself over there somehow while you're at war, right? Go over to Afghanistan and carry around your weapon and be fighting and maybe try to get a job to support yourself while you're doing that, right? That's, that's the ridiculousness of it. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Just looking at some of the lovely fruit that... Uh, Brother John has on his property there. And can you imagine saying to him, well, that's great, give all that fruit to somebody else. You don't get any of that. It's not for you. 
farmer planting, planting and producing different kinds of fruit? Of course they take from it, right? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? So he takes three examples, three illustrations from life, takes two of them from the Old Testament. The law says, it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Can you imagine? You know, the ox is going around the, the, the uh, big wheel there that they use to grind the grain. And some of the owners would put a muzzle on it because of the grain that would fall down. He didn't want the ox to eat it. He wanted it all for himself. He says, is it oxen that God's concerned about? <laughs> is that the reason he puts that command in there? So he's telling us that command is there to teach us the lesson of support, isn't it? And Paul will use it again in 1 Timothy 5. Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? We're the ones that planted the church. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. We have the right to be supported financially from you, but we haven't used that right, he says. He even goes so far as to say, Do you not know that those who ministered the holy things eat of the things of the temple, the priests and the Levites, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Right? The priests and the Levites were supported by the other people so that they could devote themselves to that work. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. The Lord has commanded that, he says. So it's very clear. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so for me. He says, now that he's put it in writing to them, they might say, oh boy, here we go. He's getting, he wants money now from us. He said, no. The fact that you Corinthians force me to put it in writing means that I will never take anything from you. I won't even take a dime from you. Which is another way of rebuking them, isn't it? He says, I have this right. He says, I have not written these things that it should be done so for me, for it would be better for me to die <laughs> rather than anyone should make my voice boasting void. He says, my voice boasting in the ministry is this. I serve the Lord, and it's unfortunate. He'll tell them in 2 Corinthians, I rob other churches to serve you. In other words, other people have to support me to serve you, he says. Which is another way of rebuking them. But he says, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul had seen the risen Lord. You remember, he had been to the third heaven and heard things unspeakable. He had a specific assignment from the Lord. Unlike none of us are going to get that kind of assignment like the Apostle Paul got. We've, we're not been brought to the third heaven. 
and had the Lord personally give us something. But since Paul was in that position, he said, woe is me if I don't fulfill it. So if I, if I won't do it out of love for the Lord, I better do it out of fear of the Lord because of the privileges that have been granted to him. But if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. Same thing he said in chapter 4, 1 and 2. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority, my right in the gospel. See, he, what's he doing? He's being careful not to be a stumbling block to the weak. And Paul, and, and, and still people who are involved in pioneer church planting work generally will apply this principle, won't they? If they go into a new area to establish the gospel, they don't want the new Christians there to support the work because they might get the idea that they have to pay for their salvation. Right? And so we, the senders, will financially help the goers to go and to take the message so that they don't have to receive it from the people where the church plant is going on. You with me? And so that's a principle we still apply even today, especially in pioneer work. So then Paul, in verse 19, down through verse 23, will demonstrate to them why he follows this. For though I am free from all men, verse 19, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? What's his goal? For people to get saved. That I might win the more. Remember we talked about this morning? Koinonia partnership with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, nine. One of our young people quoted that this morning. And what is the partnership with the Lord we're involved in? In building His church? Making disciples of all nations? Right? Passing what the Apostle Paul taught Timothy along to faithful men that they might teach others also. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. And we see the same thing here. One of the primary reasons why you and I have been left here is not to warm a pew. One of the primary... We do warm pews. But that's not a primary reason. Another not primary reason. We've not been left here to form roots in this world and live only for this world. That's not why we've been left here. What have we been left here for? To live and share the gospel that more might be saved. Why do we pray for civil governments? And why do we pray for peace in, in our particular realm where we, that the gospel might go forth? See? Everything is focused on that. That's a mental outlook that Paul had and he's urging the Corinthians to have and he's urging all of us to have. And so we set aside our rights that the gospel may go forth. Paul says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, 
antinomians. As without the law, as without the law, but he qualifies that, not being without the law toward God, he didn't become an antinomian, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. It's interesting, he says, save some, not all. He knows not all are going to respond. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker of it with you. And then in the last few verses, verses 24 to 27, his example of self-denial even becomes more clear. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but what one only receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. He'll tell Timothy, exercise yourself toward what? Godliness. For bodily exercise has some profit for this world, but godliness has profit for this world and the world to come. See? It's, it's a bigger benefit. And that's what he's saying here. He's urged them to do it. He says, I do it to myself as an example to you. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You'll say in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. I remember being in a food line with a young brother that was working towards something in the Olympics. Preparation, you know, in training. And we went by the section where the desserts are. You know, and there are all those beautiful desserts there and said, you're going to take one? Oh, no, no, I'm in training, brother. I'm in training. In training for a crown that's perishable. But we don't have that attitude toward the imperishable crown, right? Sometimes. He says, those athletes that can... And Paul was... He's always bringing forth the Olympics, right? The, the Greeks were very familiar with it. I mean, they were the originators of the Olympics, so he's always being relevant with his culture by bringing that up. He says they compete. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, a Stephanos, one of those wreaths with a bunch of leaves and flowers and you know those. But what's going to happen to that Stephanos after a few months? It's going to wither. And then it'll eventually rot and smell. But we do it for an imperishable crown. Linking right back to the judgment seat of Christ he brought up in chapter 3 that we looked at the other night, right? Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, and I fight not as one who beats the air. I'm not just shadow boxing here. I'm not just playing a game. This is real. Bodily discipline is important because it enables me to be more effective for Christ, Paul says. But I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should not, should become disqualified. And can you imagine the Apostle Paul with all the work he had done, planting churches, pioneer missionary, tremendous teacher of the Word of God, and he says he could even become disqualified. He's talking about in terms of the rewards of the judgment seat of Christ 
Remember, he talked about suffering loss there in 1 Corinthians 3. That's what this word disqualified means, suffering loss. He says, I take this matter seriously. My bodily appetites don't tell me what to do. See, he's telling this to a culture like Corinth, not unlike our culture today, which is hedonistic. And hedonism means that you live for pleasure and self-gratification, right? Whatever your, the self wants, you give it to it. You don't put anything back from it because after all, it's your right, they tell us. Paul says sometimes we need to set aside those rights for the sake of the gospel. We put our body into subjection. We say no to it. Peter will say, abstain from fleshly lust. The world doesn't like that word. They bring that up all the time. Abstinence. You can't talk about abstinence. Well, you can't to an unbeliever. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't. But to a believer, he's talking, about, he's talking to believers here who have the Holy Spirit. Through all things by Christ, we can do these things, right? And to bring in subjection. I discipline my body, bring it in a subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become cast away, disqualified, put on the shelf, decommissioned, loss of opportunity for service. And that's a serious thing. Because if you talk to people, I have talked to a few brethren that have experienced that in their life and they lament that loss. They look back and they say, wow, I lost 10 years. I lost 15 years of service for the Lord and it was so unnecessary all for a simple bit of selfish gratification. See? You see how the perspective that the Apostle gives here on living for Christ and for the Gospel is so important. And that is one of the characteristics of koinonia, as we've been saying. It's one of the characteristics of what it is to be a church of the living God. We've been looking at that. It's not just what we do that characterizes us. It's not just how we meet that characterizes us. It does include what we do and how we meet, right? But the primary thing is what? Who we are. We're children of the living God. We're born again. Christ is living inside of us by His Holy Spirit. We have everything we need for life and godliness in Him. We have the Word of God to guide us. We have the Holy Spirit ministering to us here and we have the, the Lord Jesus ministering to us at the throne of God in heaven as our high priest. How can we fail? Don't miss the privilege then, beloved. And I say that to myself too. I'm just like Paul. I could become disqualified too. We need to pray for one another. We need to exhort one another daily. Especially in the day we're living in. Be alert. Be sober. The devil, like a roaring lion, is seeking to devour you and me. Don't fall for it. If you need help, we're here for you. 
If you know someone that needs help, that's a brother or sister, do something to help them. Don't let them just cycle down into a really bad place. Being out of fellowship with the Lord and His people and suffering tremendous loss. Very practical, isn't it? May the Lord help us to apply these things and remember who we are in Christ. Father, we thank you, O Lord, for the great privilege you've given to us to represent you here on earth. Your reputation in many respects, not in all respects, but in many respects, your reputation is in our hands. It's a sobering thought. The reputation of the Holy God Almighty, the God of the universe, can be affected by what we do, what we say, and how we live. Help us to appreciate what you've done in us, for us, through us, to us. Help us to live in a way that reflects who we are as your children. May you receive the glory as we give you thanks now. Give us traveling mercies as we travel home. Help us to pray for one another, one another and enjoy one another and encourage one another. So we ask in the Lord Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen.